Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Thank you so much for joining us for our first Closer Look series. Uh, this is a real opportunity to showcase the brilliant science being done here at UC San Diego that has implications for not only science, but patients uh, who have Parkinson's disease. This is very topical, as you know. Uh, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine has funded significant uh, research projects, but in addition, there are a number of other areas uh, that um, have been well-funded by NIH. Um, this is a hot research topic, so we've got three um, really fundamentally important individuals who have made major contributions to the field of Parkinson's disease, and this should be important for you, whether you're a patient, a family member, a scientist, or a physician. Uh, you'll see that we have Dr. Irene Lidfan, uh, we have Dr. Don Cleveland, and um, Dr. David Higgins, all of whom will talk about Parkinson's disease, but from really different angles. I really, before we proceed, I uh, want to thank our members at the Sanford Stem Cell Clinical Center, the Sanford Consortium for Regenerative Medicine, and our entire stem cell team for putting this together uh, with Jake, Marcy, Michelle, and everyone to bring together these remarkable speakers. So thanks again for your efforts. And we really want to make sure that this is accessible and that um, we provide just the right level of language so we're not mired in jargon. So please let us know if you think it's a little too jargony. David Higgins is very good at getting through my jargon, so I think he can work through these other things. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Irene Littman. She's a board-certified neurologist and director of the Parkinson and Other Movement Disorder Center here at UC San Diego Health. She's the TASH Endowed Chair in Parkinsonian Disease Research at UC San Diego School of Medicine and diagnoses individuals with Parkinson's disease as well as other neurodegenerative disorders such as Huntington's disease, um, corticobasal degeneration and frontotemporal dementias. Uh, Dr. Lippen uh, has really helped to get a better understanding of Parkinsonian uh, disorders and dementia syndromes, and has really sought to develop novel therapeutic strategies for these disorders um, that mitigate the risk of progression and also improve quality of life. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Neurology, a fellow of the American Neurological Association, and is really internationally recognized for her expertise in movement disorders and dementia. She earned her, earned her medical degree from the Universidad de la República Oriental del Uruguay in Montevideo, um, she so clearly uh, speaks more than English uh, and uh, is very talented, has trained in a number of institutions, um, including in Barcelona and afterwards at Georgetown University in uh, Washington, D.C. She really leads our efforts here at UC San Diego, having been extensively trained in movement disorders, uh, including at NIH and Bethesda. And um, interestingly, did a, a year psychiatry rotation at St. Elizabeth Hospital in Washington, DC, to take into account the psychological issues that occur in the setting of dementia that we see so frequently with Parkinson's disease. So it's a, really a thrill to have Irene Litvan here uh, to start us off. Thank you so much for joining us, Irene. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, all of you, par for participating in this phenomenal uh, closer look at Parkinson's disease. Uh, these are my disclosures, but none have anything to do with this talk. 
The learning objectives are the learning about new concepts on Parkinson's disease, where it starts, how it progresses, new diagnostic approaches, as well as novel experimental therapeutics, current as well as those in development. You're going to understand that this is a very brief uh, talk about each of these uh, themes. When I was in medical school, I did learn that Parkinson's started in the brain and started in this area back in the brain uh, called mesencephalum, and uh, that these neurons that are in black, uh, that is called the substantia nigra, although it doesn't really matter the name, uh, were lost. Uh, and that can be seen in microscope. This is normal. This is uh, absent of these neurons. Um, we know that these neurons communicate with other nuclei, other areas in the brain that make, make us be able to move. That's a motor circuit. And we can uh, see that when we do a scan of the brain looking for dopamine. And you can see here that you see this coma that is a normal uh, striatum. The, here, you can see that this is different, and this is because this area has disappeared because it's a patient with Parkinson's that has lost those neurons. So there is a loss of dopamine, and dopamine is the chemical that makes all the neurons move um, and makes us move, actually, um, uh, and I think that without it, it would be like a car without gas. So what we have learned is that, in fact, it is not in the brain, but it is in the gut where the disease starts. So alpha-synuclein, that is this protein that deposits into the neurons in the brain, the cells in the brain, is what is... Uh, perhaps making the cell die. And it is first in this place, in the gut. And after the gut, it is, or perhaps initially, it is also in the olfactory bulb. So it can explain here the problems with constipations, here the problems with smell, and it also affects one of the nerves, or all the nerves, that go to the heart. So there is a denervation that we can see as well with um, uh, special studies, as I'll show you later. But in addition to that, there is something that is very relevant, that is the presence of an enactment of the dreams. When we sleep, we don't move. But if we do move then uh, if we have bad dreams, uh, we can hurt someone else. And I'll show you that in a second. But in addition to those neurons, there are other neurons that are affected and may cause depression and anxiety. So all these features that are non-motor, all those appear before we get to diagnose somebody with Parkinson's disease because they have the motor symptoms. But by then, 50% of the neurons in that substantia nigra that I show you are lost. 
and the amount of dopamine that is in that area that is deep in the brain, the striatum, is also uh, decreased significantly, 80%. Here is a patient that um, has REM sleep behavior disorder, and he has really bad dreams. He's enacting of the dreams in a second, um, as you'll see. And this is something that is treatable, and it's very important to know that if somebody has it, even if they don't have any other symptoms, it is important to consult a neurologist. So there are four stages in Parkinson's disease. One, that we call it preclinical because there are no symptoms. And there we can see the abnormal imaging. We can see perhaps other biomarkers that we're starting to search for. And there may be some as well some genetic factors in some people. But then, in addition to that, we have all these symptoms that I told you before, and that's what we call prodromal phase. And when the motor problems occur, that's the early phase of Parkinson's, where slowness, that is key, is associated with stiffness, tremor. And then at a more advanced uh, stage, there is some excess of movement because the neurons become, with the treatment, more sensitive. There is also, in some people, cognitive disturbances that may lead to dementia in a significant proportion of people, much more than in the general population. And there is also, as well, lower uh, a lower uh, uh, number in the blood pressure, uh, the blood pressure drops when we stand. And that it means that there is less blood going into the brain and that can give symptoms. This study, I think that is very crucial because these authors, what they did is use several imaging uh, modalities to be able to measure what happens at the level of the gut, that is those cholinergic neurons that are affected, what happens at the level of the heart with an MIVG, uh, that is uh, looking at the uh, amount of innervation from the sympathetic nerve, and then they look at other aspects in the, in the, in the MRI, as well as looking, more importantly, in the locus ceruleus through another ligand, and with a dope, fluorodopa uh, ligand, they look at what happens in the areas that are the striatum, the areas that I showed you before. And they tested, they did all these uh, imaging studies in people that had this enacting of the dreams only, and they did it also in people that had Parkinson's disease. And the interesting aspect is that uh, the people that had Parkinson's disease had all these areas involved, but the people that had the REM sleep behavior disorder, the enacting of the dreams, those had all the areas except the areas related to the motor uh, system, that is the substantia nigra. So 
kind of supporting that idea that there is that kind of a progression from uh, a pathway that goes from the gut all the way to the brain. So based on that, many things happen. One is the development of uh, research criteria to be able to detect the disease at very early stages when there are only non-motor symptoms. And that was based uh, on the fact that as we age, we have more Parkinson's disease. It is also based on the presence of markers of risk. For example, being a male is a risk, uh, being in contact with pesticides, or the other factors that I mentioned, uh, that is the prodromal markers that are the enacting of the dream uh, as an example. So putting all that together uh, through a, a statistical model, they're able to look at what are the probabilities that someone would have Parkinson's disease. This criteria was tested in different uh, populations, populations that had the REM behavior disorders, others that had the lack of smell, um, and they were able to find that the criteria was very specific. Whenever the, the likelihood was high, then the possibilities of being Parkinson's were there, um, but it wasn't sensitive. So it didn't detect all the people that truly converted in having Parkinson's disease with the uh, following years. What is more interesting as well is that in people that do have genetic um, markers uh, for Parkinson's disease, genetic, genetic mutations, when they apply this criteria, many more people that had um, um, a likelihood uh, ratio or a high probability of converting converted into Parkinson's disease, that is the motor symptoms, was much, much higher. So it is much more sensitive and it's also very specific. Another study looked at what happens in people that have lack of smell and also have problems with the DAT scan that is abnormal. And they figured out that in four years, if those two things were abnormal, someone would develop Parkinson's disease. Of course, lack of smell, constipations, those are very common symptoms in the general population. So not everybody's gonna have uh, Parkinson's because they have those symptoms. They could be related to many other things for example, smoking. So based on multiple studies, this criteria is being updated and is with a hope that is more sensitive when we will validate it. It also helped uh, the new uh, uh, research and the new knowledge to change the um, criteria for Parkinson's disease. Before, we used to think that people with Parkinson's disease had to have either slowness with either tremor, stiffness, or uh, postural instability, problems with balance. But uh, now it is clear that those problems with balance are very late 
in the course of the illness. Therefore, um, the new criteria includes only slowness and tremor or uh, stiffness. So summarizing uh, what I just said, combined multimodal imaging in patients with uh, REM behavior disorder show that there was a profound cholinergic deficit, sympathetic heart, and in, the, in another areas uh, that would show denervation, but there was not involvement of the dopamine uh, areas uh, in the substantia nigra, and that reflects this model that was developed by uh, Professor Brack. The Movement Disorder Society then uh, created a prodromal PD criteria, and I was happy to be part of that. And also, we modify the criteria for Parkinson's disease. I didn't talk about this, but another important aspect that has uh, also been more lately measured is alpha synuclein, that uh, protein that I said that accumulates in the brain in the spinal fluid of, norm, of, of people that have Parkinson's disease and compared to normal people, it is very clearly differentiated. So now let's go to the novel experimental therapeutics. So in order to be able to treat a disease, we need to know what is it that causes it. Otherwise, it's impossible, correct? So we knew for many years that environmental exposures, uh, pesticides, and um, other organic um, and metals uh, did lead to uh, Parkinsonism, Parkinson's disease. Um, but then over the past several years, we started to find genes that cause Parkinson's disease in families. And then it happens to be that multiple genes were found that were not really always in families, but at times they could be, uh, that are called modifying. That is, perhaps need more than just those genes to develop the disease, or all those genes are necessary for the development of the disease, or maybe environmental uh, exposures and those genes leads to development of the disease. So in this diagram, we can look at the frequency of the disease, and here is the risk of, the, of having Parkinson's. So there are some uh, mutations in, in genes that lead to, if you, to Parkinson's disease. If you have that gene, you're gonna develop Parkinson's disease. But there are others that are much more frequent that may be in the general population and may or may not develop, uh, help to develop Parkinson's disease. And as you can see, some of them are the same. So there is, there is a, also uh, a difference in the strength, in some sense, of that mutation. There are also intermediate genes, like uh, GBA, glucosyrobridase uh, uh, gene, that is affected. 
There are multiple other mechanisms that have been uh, thought and found uh, reasons for uh, being that are affected as well. And we don't know if these mechanisms, such as uh, problems with the mitochondria, the factory of the cell, that then leads to oxidative stress, or if it is inflammation, or if it is the areas in the brain that destroy um, the proteins uh, that lead to autophagy and ubiquitin production dysfunction, if those uh, mechanisms are the ones that lead to the aggregation of alpha-synuclein, or if the aggregation, the clustering of all this uh, protein is the one that basically cause all these other problems. But be it as it may, these are all the factors. And what really happens is that proteins that normally exist um, suddenly change their form, uh, the configuration, and they bind to each other. So and I'll show you that in a minute. But all these problems lead to the death of the cells, that is, lead to Parkinson's disease. So if we search for disease-modifying therapies, we can prevent the disease, we can try to slow it down or halt it altogether. Of course, we can prevent it in those that may have some genes, and if we have a treatment that can uh, prevent the disease uh, for, from appearing. Um, but the strategies that have been used so far, none of those uh, have helped in that regard. Um, there, and it, it would be necessary to, the, to identify people that have only the clinical, preclinical stage. That is very difficult. Um, then, there is a possibility then to use different strategies based on the possible causes to uh, try to modify the disease. And one could be reducing the oxidative damage, the inflammation, um, targeting those abnormal proteins, um, or try to see if we can avoid the spread of the disease. So there are multiple areas then that are um, affected and that we can try to interact. And I think that Professor Cleveland is going to go into more detail into all these things. But I can tell you then that we can try to avoid the, the uh, development of those abnormal proteins, um, or there could be ways in which we can avoid that the disease uh, would spread in theory. So the first thing that we can do, we talked about the micro, the, the gut, and in the gut there is the microbiome, the, bac the bacteria that are there, and there are differences between those in Parkinson's disease than the general, general population. So one possibility would be to try to change that, and this is what this study did, and the probiotic administration in people with Parkinson's seemed to slow the progression of the illness. This needs to be replicated in, in larger studies. So let's talk about medications, because this is what we need to slow the progression of the illness. 
And I don't know if you know how much it costs to bring a new molecule to the market. It is $2.6 billion, and it may take up to 13 to 15 years, and only 11% really make it. You can see here exactly all the phases that uh, the medication needs to go in order to really be approved by the FDA. However, if we use drugs that already exist in the market, using those old drugs for new applications would cost much, much less, 300 million, versus taking also less years, 6.5. So there are many attempts to do so. So there was this trial that um, tried it to um, inhibit the calcium the calcium channels, specific calcium channels, with this medication that was that is called Isradipine. It is unfortunate that this study just finished and just failed. So there was another trial with inosine, and inosine um, was to was given to try to see if we can. Um, use it as an, an antioxidant. In fact, uric acid is one of the best antioxidants, but unfortunately, that study also failed. But now, there is another study that was done that is with a medication that is used for diabetes. Uh, it's a medication, it's a glucagon-like peptide that is used uh, and uh, it has been shown that people with diabetes have more Parkinson's than those that don't. And the use of this drug seemed to slow the progression of the illness. So in, based on that, uh, this is why they did this study uh, that is a randomized double-blind study uh, to try to see if that would happen. And it did happen. Um, but the study is a very small study. So now there is a large study that is being done trying to see if we can replicate those results. Interesting as well, I've seen also that there are epidemiologic studies that confirm these aspects as well. Nilotinib may be uh, something that you may have heard um, is a medication for chronic leukemia, and it was the first study was done in Georgetown University, and the results were phenomenal. People that wouldn't be able to walk started walking, but what happened is that that study was done with uh, that was what we call an open study. Everybody knew what the drug was. And so those studies really are not very helpful. So now there are studies that are what we call phase twos in which we randomize for either placebo or the drug, and those are ongoing and we don't have results. There is new, a new phase one just uh, starting to look at uh, small molecules that would target those proteins uh, that move from one cell to another that I'll discuss in a minute. And this uh, is moving forward 
uh, as well. So the proteins that move from one cell to another are this alpha synuclein, um, and this is what happens uh, in a cell. The protein changes its configuration and then binds to each other, clutter the cell, and the cell dies. But as well, because it's communicating with another cell, then the disease goes to the other uh, cell and then it spreads the illness. However, if we use antibodies, we could rescue these abnormal proteins and then try to see if we can scavenge them and reduce uh, the possibility of or slowing the disease or stopping the disease eventually. This is the immunotherapy. You may have heard that all that with COVID. I, and I think antibodies is an exciting development for Parkinson's as well. Uh, I think that uh, there are several uh, studies that are ongoing that, if successful, can reduce the, the spread of the illness by reducing alpha-synuclein moving from one cell to another. So we had these two studies at UCSD. Um, we did the phase one, that is to try to see if it's safe, and now we are in a phase two, that is to look at uh, whether uh, giving the, the um, antibody, it is better than placebo. One of them uh, just uh, finished um, and went into um, the open trial, that is when everybody knows that they're having the disease, but here you want to know what happens long-term because the studies last a year. So there are other um, antibodies that are being developed. The pharmaceutical industry is very active and it's also active with uh, creating vaccines. So in Europe, this company, Aphiris, has created a vaccine that actually tries to develop the antibodies, our own antibodies. And uh, the, this is being tested and apparently the results, at least in the phase one, seem to be very good. There are other trials that require intraoperative uh, procedures. Uh, one of them is the use of GDNF, that is a nutrient, um, as a gene therapy for Parkinson's disease. Uh, this is created with a modified virus. And um, we will be doing this study. It's being done at this, at this time at uh, UCSF and will be uh, next as well in uh, starting the, the study. So there are other studies that use stem cells, and uh, there are uh, several in Australia and China. Stem cells are very important because they provide a continuous amount of dopamine. This is the, the cells that are being given. 
The problem, I think, is that it doesn't treat the non-dopamine symptoms that are the non-motor symptoms that are the hardest to treat clinically. Clinically, we do pretty good with the motor, motor symptoms. Not perfect, but very good. Um, but giving the, the stem cells, what it will do is improve that um, the functioning of that motor circuit. That in some sense is as well what the DBS does. There are many other drugs that are uh, being funded by Michael J. Fox as well as uh, other agencies. And uh, I think we, ha we should have a lot of uh, hope that there could be some of them that could be effective. So I think that for those who have the disease and the families, I think it is very important to know that this field is moving forward very fast. Um, Don, uh, Professor uh, Cleveland will talk about uh, one of the other things that are other therapies approaches that have been uh, done at, at UCSD that is converting the astrocytes that are cells that help nurturing the cell in some ways uh, into neurons. Uh, another important aspect is the development of personalized medicine. That is, if we know what are the genes that are affected, we could try to give medications to improve them. And in the general population, we would have to search much more in order to be able to do that. Some of that is being done um, and is, is actually being done at UCSD as well, that is uh, treating um, pac patients that have PD and have uh, mutation. And the medication, this uh, glucosyl ceramide, stimulate the enzyme that is deficient in Parkinson's disease with uh, GBA. We'll see what does that. But there are also many other studies for that um, uh, deficiency. So the field is moving very fast. And the same for other um, mutations like LRRK2. So I just want to say briefly that I'm very excited with what we are doing. That is uh, the development of a way to measure the amount of levodopa so we could manage patients in a much better way. Because if we know what is the level, we would know what is the level that they should have even before they develop complications or when they develop complications, we would know how to adjust that better. And this is done with a wonderful group of bioengineers at UCSD, uh, Professor uh, Wang. And you can see that uh, the device itself is actually very, very small. It's, this is a coin and this is the device per se. So people would have it all the time and would be able to know constantly what is the level of levodopa. So the patient is helped and the physician as well. This is where we are. 
And in conclusion, emerging therapies are directly or indirectly targeting alpha-synuclein to slow the disease progression. The therapies are attempting to avoid alpha-synuclein aggregation. The, the change, the cluttering of the, of the proteins or the spread or modifications of the microbiome uh, with different approaches. And I think that this is interesting because it has move forward in multiple ways. And I think we will see that one of these therapies will be very helpful. So um, this is our group. And thank you for your attention. Okay, thank you, Dr. Littman. I can see that there's a lot going on in the field, as can everyone else on this uh, presentation, this WebEx. There is a question about cardiac dysfunction. Uh, does that derive from autonomic nervous system dysfunction? And secondly, when does this appear in the course of Parkinson's disease progression? This appears very early, and it doesn't give any symptoms. So if someone has symptoms with a heart, such as... Uh, pain, uh, and they have uh, problems with the coronary arteries, there is absolutely nothing to do with Parkinson's disease. So this is just a marker for us. Uh, it doesn't really affect in any way the heart. I had a question about the microbiome. So um, Rob Knight and others published a paper suggesting that, as you were alluding to, that the microbiome could promote motor dysfunction and neuroinflammation in Parkinson's disease. And there are people with ulcerative colitis and H. pylori that may be at slightly higher risk. It looked pretty interesting to look at um, probiotics. What about just antibiotics targeting H. pylori to prevent the production of metabolites from these microbio microbiota? What about that as a clinical trial? It hasn't been done, uh, and we don't know. The, the problem with antibiotics is that there is a development of um, some resistance. So I wonder uh, how long would you have to do that uh, for this to be effective, and could you modify your microbiota, mi microbiota in um, bad ways? So right. it's, yeah, it's all about the complicated. Got it. And then there was another question. Are there any trials going on in North America for Ambroxol? Yes, um, they are. You need to look at clinicaltrials.gov and you're going to see all the places that all these trials are being done. All those that I mentioned. Sorry, it's just we're running out of time. But what induces apoptosis of dopaminergic neurons? Is there one specific um, therapeutic vulnerability that could be targeted? We don't know yet. We don't know. I wish we would, but we don't know. Okay, so we're going to have to move on. There's a question about alpha-synuclein, but I think that we can uh, move on to Dr. Cleveland. Thank you so much, Dr. Litvin. Uh, we really appreciate the time you've taken to discuss Parkinson's disease with us and the really exciting therapeutic strategies that you've put in place. Thank you. Thank you. I will move on now um, to Dr. Cleveland. Uh, so Don Cleveland is here. He's at UC San Diego. He's a distinguished professor. He's actually the chair of the Department of Cellular and Molecular Medicine, uh, also a member of the Ludwig Foundation and, or Ludwig Institute, uh, was the, the, um, the prize winner, the breakthrough prize winner, I believe it was in 2018, for his remarkable discoveries uh, regarding how to target some of these abnormalities 
in ALS and um, more recently in Parkinson's disease with antisense oligonucleotide strategies. This is really a fundamental breakthrough and shows how great science leads to great medicine. So thank you so much, Dr. Cleveland, for being here. Absolutely, my pleasure uh, to be here. Uh, if you, you can see, I've, uh, it's, this has given me an opportunity finally to, to get properly dressed for the four months of COVID. So uh, what I'd like to do today uh, is to follow uh, Dr. Litvan's introduction to Parkinson's with a story of the development of a strategy uh, of using what I call designer DNA drugs uh, to target individual genes that are really fundamental to individual uh, neurodegenerative diseases. The story began with the recognition that all of the the major diseases of the of aging nervous system, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, Huntington's, in all those cases where we know of a gene or genes that can cause the disease, those genes are expressed very widely. And a, a follow-up discovery, especially by a team at NIH, uh, initially discovered that if you inherit an extra copy of a normal gene, the gene that encodes alpha-synuclein, and, and as I'm sure you all know, you usually inherit one copy of each gene from mom and one from dad, but if you, by a, a quirk of genetics, you end up in inheriting three copies of a completely normal gene alpha, that encodes alpha-synuclein, you will get Parkinson's disease. So too much of a good thing. And a similar story emerged in Alzheimer's disease where if you inherit three copies of a different gene, the amyloid precursor protein gene, you will get Alzheimer's disease. And recognizing that, then an on-disease mechanism therapy directly targeting what initially goes wrong would be the, 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 in, the high level of synthesis of those genes and therefore just turn the gene down. And we set out uh, beginning in two, uh, 2003 to do that. And the way we're going to do it is to use a little designer DNA drug, which if you get it inside the target cell, it can pair with the intermediate of, from, made from the gene. The intermediate's called an RNA, and it makes the RNA a substrate for an endogenous enzyme that degrades the RNA when paired with our little designer DNA drug. And that enzyme is present in almost all of our cells. And you can thereby destroy the intermediate, turn the gene off. And over the years, the medicinal chemists have modified, here's a little a strand of DNA, the substance of our genome. And you, they've modified it in a variety of ways. And those modifications have produced an amazing drug. So as we've learned, single doses of these designer DNA drugs when administered in the nervous system give you really long-term efficacy. You know, when you take an aspirin, you get three or four hours worth of relief. Well, for these drugs in the nervous system, we don't get three or four hours. We don't get three or four days. We, don't, we get three or four months. And so we're going to dose patients uh, three or four times a year to, to silence a disease-causing gene. The the disease we started with is the one that uh, the Americans call Lou Gehrig's disease, or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or for short, ALS. It's a disease where the neurons, the ones in the brain that come down the spinal cord, and then the ones that extend out to innervate the muscles and to trigger the muscles to contract, those nerves selectively die. 
And, uh, and uh, while ALS is not a particularly prominent disease, there are about 5 million people now alive who will die from ALS. And the hallmark, the landmark discovery that opened the era of scientific, uh, of designer therapies in ALS was the discovery of mutations in a gene called superoxide dismutase are causative of a proportion, about 2% of ALS. And we demonstrated those gene mutations are encode a gene product that is toxic. It's not because the gene doesn't make, doesn't have, encode a, a protein with a normal function, it's because the, gene, the mutant gene product is toxic. And it's a little embarrassing to the research community that uh, um, almost 20 years later, uh, we still, almost 30 years later, we still don't agree on what the toxicity is, but you would be directly on disease mechanism if you could just turn off the disease-causing gene. So I'm going to show you. I know this is not a scientific audience, but uh, I hope everybody will be able to follow this. This is the founding experiment, the first time an, a designer DNA drug was used in the mammalian nervous system, and we're going to dose an animal that has an ALS-causing mutant gene. And when we, when we dose with a DNA drug that doesn't have a target, here's the level of expression of that uh, ALS-causing gene. And look at the level when we add the right drug. We can, we can lower it to about 30% of its original level. Actually, if we add more drug, we can lower it down to 5%. So in a dose-dependent manner, we can lower the, the, uh, the, the, the synthesis of the product of this disease-causing gene and even more so, when we, do, we introduce the drug into the cerebral spinal fluid, the fluid that bathes the brain and spinal cord, it gets pumped around throughout the entire nervous system, and you get gene silencing throughout the entirety of the nervous system. And when you dose one of these animals that's going to develop fatal ALS-like disease, very rapidly progressive ALS-like uh, uh, disease, if you dose them with a... Uh, with a uh, with just a, a saline solution, oh, they only, they only live 25 days after the initiation of the paralysis. But if we dose them with our designer DNA drug, they now, we slowed disease progression after onset. We doubled survival after onset. This is the founding example. And we then, and we, and we began this effort in about 2003. And in 2006, we demonstrated that we could deliver these designer DNA drugs broadly throughout the, uh, the mammalian uh, and non-human primate nervous systems. An even better example of a use of such a designer DNA drug would be in the disease Huntington's disease. 100% of Huntington's is caused by mutation in the same gene, the Huntington gene. And it's very clear that the mutation causes a toxicity. So here again, if you could just, an on-disease mechanism therapy would be to lower the synthesis of this mutant Huntington gene. And we tried that. And when we did that, in animals that develop aspects of Huntington's disease, we dosed them once, mid-disease. And what we, what we, uh, what we, note, what we noted with great enthusiasm was that by dosing already affected animals that we got sustained disease reversal. So that, that then led to 
a, a first-in-man trial in Huntington's disease, which, for, for which the outcome was announced in the initial outcome in, in December of 2017, a sort of holiday present. And you, here you see the Washington Post described it as a phenomenal trial result, and it was phenomenal in the sense that we lowered the le- we demonstrated we lowered the level of the mutant Huntington product to the level intended, and that then led uh, Big Pharma Roche to to license the the approach from the San Diego company Ionis, and Roche is now conducting a large efficacy trial with a 660-patient trial, and we are uh, awaiting the outcome of, of whether we've been able to affect disease course. A further example came with the discovery here on, in, in September of 2011 of the most common, the, the most frequent cause of inherited ALS. It also happens to be the second most frequent, uh, uh, the most frequent cause of the second most frequent dementia, and this designer DNA drug, we can t- we can design the drug to hit the uh, the intermediate target from I- individual genes, and the the absolute truth is that the discovery was published on September twenty first. We designed the strategy on September twenty second. We achieved proof of principle that we could change disease course in animal models of disease in in four years later, and we and we dosed the first patient, uh, and these patients are are being dosed at uh, UC San Diego. We dosed the first patient uh, almost exactly seven years from the from the, the the initiating discovery. Okay, and then one one last example, and then to Parkinson's. So the the. The last example came with the discovery of the gene affected the most in sporadic ALS. Two teams, my team and a team at Harvard, co-discovered this gene called Stathman 2 in January of 2019. And what we've done subsequently, even with COVID, just last month, we demonstrated proof of principle of being able to use a designer DNA drug to restore the normal synthesis of of Stathman II, which gets ablated in sporadic ALS. And we're proposing now, or planning, proposing to get to clinical trial in 2023, now shortening the span from identification of the target to an um, inhuman a clinical trial to what we hope is about four years. Okay, so now what about Parkinson's disease? And as Dr. Litvan introduced in, uh, uh, in, in her talk, there are mutations, the most frequent mutation known to cause Parkinson's disease is in the gene called LARC2. And it's, it, un, most mutations in genes frequently inactivate the ability of the gene to make a functional product, but that's not what these mutations are. They hyperactivate uh, the LARC2 uh, gene. And indeed, here, uh, uh, Dr. Jameson mentioned that I won this prize, uh, breakthrough prize in life sciences. Here, here's at the prize ceremony, and it was presented to me by Sergey Brin, the founder of Google. And Sergey Brin is, pro- is probably the planet's most famous individual with an LARC2 mutation. He went public with this in 2008, so there's nothing private about this story. He has this LARC2 mutation, which makes him very likely to get Parkinson's disease. His mother has Parkinson's disease. 
My father died from Parkinson's disease. And, and Sergei has this LARC2 mutation, and we, we, an on-disease mechanism therapy would be to turn down that gene. And indeed, we initiated uh, with Ionis, uh, partnered with Biogen, initiated a trial using a designer DNA drug to suppress the LARC2 gene for this form of inherited Parkinson's gene. It uh, started just at the end of 2019. And even more so, uh, as uh, Irene mentioned earlier, alpha-synuclein is found a, a misaccumulated broadly in, uh, par- in, uh, in Parkinson's disease, uh, in, in most Parkinson's patients. And we know now that if you just inherit, as I introduced before, three copies of the alpha-synuclein gene instead of two, that absolutely will, gi- will give you Parkinson's disease. And so... The, an, an obvious approach now would be to turn down the alpha-synuclein gene as an on-disease mechanism therapy for almost all uh, Parkinson's disease instances. And excitingly for us, I think, early this year, uh, using a designer DNA drug to suppress alpha-synuclein, that trial was initiated uh, by, by uh, uh, Biogen and is now in, in progress. Okay, so here's the summary of the development of designer DNA drug therapy for nervous system disease. We know that we, that we can deliver these drugs very broadly throughout the nervous system. We can turn genes on or turn them off. We have long-lasting efficacy from single doses, uh, more than th- three months. It's commercially feasible, and it's been through five uh, safety trials in, for various indications, and all five have been proven to be safe. And indeed, we have one approved drug for a childhood disease. It's actually one of the most frequent inherited diseases of children in a disease called spinal muscular atrophy, approved at the end of 2016. And we have, there are five ongoing trials, three in ALS for two inherited forms, one for sporadic ALS. We also have one in Huntington's disease, one in Alzheimer's disease, and as I just indicated, two initiated over in the last year for one form of inherited Parkinson's disease and for sporadic Parkinson's disease. And now I'd like to close with an even more uh, uh, extravagant example. Uh, And and Dr. Litvin introduced this before. And it's the use of an antisense oligonucleotide, a designer DNA drug, to execute what I call identity theft as a mechanism to generate new neurons to replace those lost to disease. And indeed, this is a strategy that has been implemented, that a strategy to, to induce, replace neurons lost to disease has been an, uh, a, a goal for now for 40 years with the first trials in Parkinson's disease initiated in in the 80s and then 90s. Uh, And uh, as you can see here, without going through the details, many different applications have been tried. None have really been uh, fully successful, and I'm going to propose a, a, a new one today. And it is to use these designer DNA drugs to reset cell identity, and to do that, to convert abundant non-neuronal cells, in, the case, in our, our case, ones called astrocytes, and convert them, get them to convert from uh, the non-neuronal uh, neurons to real neurons to replace those that have been lost in disease. And the strategy is outlined here. 
my colleague, Jireng Fu at UC San Diego, has identified six genes in two three-gene circuits. And if you have the, the, the two circuits set to the right position, you are a neuron. And what he realized was that actually astrocytes, this abundant cell type within the nervous system, a partner of, the, uh, of neurons, that the astrocytes already have the second three-gene switch set to the neuron position. And look here, where the astrocytes have high levels of one gene, PTB, the neurons have low levels of PTB. And these circuits, you can see the, the green bars show that this gene in, uh, represses this gene, represses this gene. They all repress each other. So you have a high level of this one. You're locked in that position. So our strategy will be, what if we just turn down the, the PTB gene to make it look like a neuron? Will an astrocyte convert into a neuron? And so here you go. We're gonna, what you're look, looking at in this image is the blue is looking at all of the genes stuck on their chromosomes inside the nucleus of these, this culture in, in, a, in, 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 in a plastic dish, culture of astrocytes, human astrocytes. And now they, have, they do not express any uh, neuronal proteins, but when you suppress PTB using an antisense oligonucleotide, you now, and wait four weeks, these cells are just sitting there on the dish, they convert into neurons expressing neuronal proteins, one of, one of which is labeled green here and one of which is labeled red. So, and almost all the astrocytes turn into neurons. And so now, does that really work in animals, in the real mammalian nervous system? And we're gonna test this. We're gonna test this in an animal in which we're going to induce Parkinsonian disease. So if you look over on the left here, well, what you're seeing here is the substantia nigra, the, the neurons of the substantia nigra, the ones at risk in Parkinson's disease. There they are in green. And, oh, and they send processes, they innervate a region of the brain called the striatum. And there they go, they're, they're green, their green processes come up into the striatum. And their job is to, to synthesize a chemical, dopamine, and to deliver it and release it here in the striatum. Now we're going to use a toxin, the, a, a chemical toxin, which when injected unilaterally, only onto one side, you can see it's, it has killed most of, more than 90% of the, the neurons of the substantia nigra, there are very few green ones left, and there's almost no innervation of those the remaining neurons in the substantia nigra, I'm sorry, in the striatum, and the d dopamine levels in the striatum plummet. Okay, so now what are we going to do? We're going to lesion these animals, we're going to test them behaviorally to, to determine that they do have a Parkinson's phenotype. We're then going to inject a designer DNA drug to, to suppress PTB and then ask, and wait three months and ask, have we made new neurons? Have the new neurons innervated the striatum? Ha are they now releasing and restoring dopamine levels in the striatum? Oh, so if you take unlesioned animals, normal animals, and you measure them with a variety of behavioral measures, but here, here, they're normal at the beginning, and three months later, they're still normal. No surprise at all. 
But if you lesion animals, what happens? Well, actually, as you inject this toxin, what you see is that uh, sometimes you oblate all the, uh, the nigral neurons and sometimes only some of them. And here, the animal with the largest lesion, wait three months after suppressing PTB to convert astrocytes, astrocytes to, into neurons. And look, the animal gets better. The next one, it gets better over that three-month period. The next one gets better. The one lesioned less, but it still gets better. The next one gets better, gets better. Six of seven lesioned animals got better when we treated it with this uh, designer DNA drug to suppress PTB. Look, and while one animal just didn't get better at all, we obviously failed to deliver the drug correctly in that animal. So we argue from this that we can indeed use identity theft in the mammalian nervous system, that we can use our designer DNA drug to convert astrocytes into replacement niagaral neurons that somehow know where to go. They re-innervate the striatum, they re-deliver uh, dopamine to the striatum, and they, and they reverse disease course. And we would further propose that this kind of designer DNA drug-mediated conversion of astrocytes into replacement neurons may be broadly applicable for restoring neurons in uh, a variety of different neurodegenerative diseases. And so let me just close by uh, just pointing the folks who've really done the work that I've described today. There were a, tri a, trio, of, uh, a trio of colleagues, uh, Tim Miller, now in the, runs his own team, ha, runs the ALS trials. He's now at, at Washington University. Richard Smith is a, a neurologist who's been in San Diego for 40 years, and he was adamant that we try this. Frank Bennett is the chief scientific officer of IONIS, and with him, we got this strategy started. Frank partnered with Adrian Craner at, Col at Cold Spring Harbor to develop the approved therapy for spinal muscular, spinal muscular atrophy. Holly Cordesewitz led the Huntington effort first at UC San Diego, now at IONIS, demonstrating that she could get disease reversal by a single dose administration to suppress Huntington synthesis. Clotilde Lagier-Turin, now at uh, Mass General Hospital and Harvard, at, uh, it let, uh, partnered with me and uh, John Rabbits, a neurologist here at UC San Diego, in the development of a strategy to target the most frequent cause of inherited ALS. My current team, along with Clotilde Lagier-Turin, uh, there's my current team who has identified Stathman and is as a target for sporadic ALS and who will develop it into a therapy in the next uh, handful of years. And then targeting Parkinson's, demonstrating that we can generate replacement neurons. It's a, it's a, my colleague, Zhidang Fu, his, his postdoc, Hao Kwan, and a pair of, uh, in, uh, of researchers in, in my team who've demonstrated that we can, with antisense oligonucleotides, designer DNA drugs, we can use identity theft to make new neurons. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Don, and uh, for showing us so elegantly that DNA is not destiny if you use designer DNA drugs. So I really appreciate uh, everything you've put forward there, as I'm sure the rest of the audience does. Uh, there's one question. What are the effects of using designer DNA drugs? Are there specific side effects that are unique to this kind of antisense oligonucleotide? So uh, like every, any drug, uh, there, there can be uh, minor side effects. They're, they've been limited to uh, some patients have 
reactions to the actual drug, but we're only dosing patients three or four times a year. So if you have a headache for two days uh, and three times a year, it's, it, these are very, so very acceptable side effects. There was a fear that they, would, that they might be immunogenic and that there would be that our immune systems would, would would attack the drugs that has not been seen in any of the trials yet uh, so we are cautiously optimistic that that will not uh, appear as a as a as a long term uh, uh, problem so we're uh, actually it's worked out better than expected we can deliver them very broadly very long term efficacies i think the real question for them is how much do you want to turn those genes down for the genes we're turning down? And for the genes that we're turning up, can we turn them up far enough? Yes, uh, certainly challenges, but very exciting problems to have in the sense that we didn't have anything before and now you're, you're creating a whole new field with antisense oligonucleotide therapy. Thank you so much. Uh, there's one question, but I think it's better for Dr. Litvin. Uh, from somebody who's um, confused about alpha-synuclein. She's been giving her husband with Parkinson's disease alpha-synuclein supplements and wondering if it's making things worse. I'm not aware of those supplements, so I cannot really talk about them. Uh, I have never heard anybody taking supplements of alpha-synuclein, but I certainly wouldn't do that. I don't think that anybody should try medications that have not gone through experimental uh, trials and have been shown to be effective because there are thousands of things that people can sell and um, are really bad. And that, in fact, is one of the problems in our area as well, that there is a lot of fake salesmen that do sell uh, stem cells and those are not really tried. So I think I would say I wouldn't take it. Okay. So before we turn it on, over to the esteemed Dr. Higgins, uh, there is a question about the converted neurons, the identity theft neurons from the astrocytes. Do they project to the forebrain? So uh, precisely where they do, pro- so they're, uh, I should have said, I know the answer to the questions before you ask them. So the answer is, we don't know. So, uh, so this is the tiniest tip of the iceberg, and I suspect there's a very, very big iceberg. So um, th- these are questions that now need to be addressed. How, do, how many of those a- neurons become the right kind of neurons? In the case that I just described in the, the Parkinsonian example, about a third of the neurons in uh, the animals became exactly dopamine-producing neurons, and they went the right direction. That, we were amazed at that. Some didn't go the right direction, and we need to know, we need now to test, can we fix that? And so for the specific question, yeah, we don't know that. Uh, we do know, uh, and I'll just leave it there, we do know that if you, uh, it, it's sort of future, uh, Buck Rogers futuristic, but we do know if you take a normal animal, aging animal, and you ask, can you produce new neurons, say, in the region of the brain that is really uh, involved in cognition, the hippocampus, can you make new neurons in the hippocampus? And the answer is, yes, you can. So uh, I think there are are many, many things that we will be able to do with this. We have not demonstrated that we can do most of those today. 
we and indeed if I, I I think I failed to point it out but the the uh, demonstration that we can make new neurons in reverse disease course in a Parkinson in a chemically induced Parkinson's disease that was only published on June the 24th uh, 2020 so we are we, what what I showed you today is this is what we have this is an we sort of opened the notebooks that's what we know uh, we will know a lot more next year and I think we've activated uh, a, a, an armada of individuals worldwide it's not true we cannot make new neurons in the, the mammalian nervous system we can and I failed, uh, uh, Katrina, I failed to point out one beauty of the approach of converting uh, uh, of this identity theft, which is that the, uh, it does not require immuno, I- immune suppression. These cells are, your, the, are the, the individual's own cells. They're marked with the uh, cell markers of self that the immune system see, they're marked perfectly. Whereas in all those other trials, there were real immune issues and immune suppression was required uh, f- throughout uh, for m- most of those. And here, we're, they're your cells. We're going to convert them in, in, in place, and we're going to do so with a really easy to, to deliver drug, which, uh, and we can do it over and over again if you want to make more and make more. Sounds like another breakthrough prize, Don. Uh- <laughs> Anyway, uh, we will move on to David Higgins. So Dr. Higgins uh, got his PhD in molecular biology at the University of Rochester. Uh, He was actually faculty at SDSU and the president of the Alzheimer's Disease Association or or Parkinson's Disease Association. Uh, He's been a stalwart champion for people with Parkinson's disease, has worked with the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine to ensure that research funding is applied to finding new strategies. Uh, David, unfortunately, we only have a few minutes but we really wanted to end with you because we think you'll provide the appropriate perspective as always and really get us on track to really focus on the most high priority items when it comes to working with Parkinson's disease and uh, the research, both clinical and scientific. David, please uh, take it away. Thank you, Dr. Jamison. I really appreciate uh, excuse me, being part of uh, this today. Um, I'd like to thank, thank Dr. L- Drs. Litvan and Cleveland for, for being here as well. Um, these are the folks, in case those of you in the audience don't know, these are the folks in the community that are making things happen. Uh, the, the, the San Diego community as well as the, the community of the world and Parkinson's. So you are very privileged and very, um, uh, very special to, to, to see this today. Um, I don't know anything about supplements. I wanted to throw that out first. I've never heard about uh, alpha-synuclein supplements. It doesn't sound like it makes sense, but uh, you know, we, we, we keep our, nose to, our ears, ears to the ground, and, and that's not one that we've heard about. Okay, so um, there, there are really, th- I'll try to keep with uh, uh, the short amount of time we have, there are really three uh, points that I wanted to make today. Uh, and this is a, a new world that we live in, and it's a good new world in, in this respect. And that is uh, medicine is changing. Um, we've become a patient-centered uh, care has become the focus of, of medicine today. And um, in some sense, uh, that's driven by patients, but it's also really driven by clinicians. And, and, and people like Dr. Jameson and Dr. Litvan are, are on board. They're, they're leading the, the, the fight. They're not, they're not uh, slowing it down or, or getting in the way. So it's really important to understand what uh, patient-centered medicine is, uh, how the medical world is, uh, views it and, and is employing it, and how it impacts uh, Parkinson's. Some of the, the elements of, of, of patient-centered care is it's collaborative, it's coordinated, it's accessible. It focuses on physical comfort as well as emotional well-being of the patient. And 
and one of the key things is, is that the patient's family and friends and uh, coworkers or whatever, whoever has, has uh, something to offer, uh, it needs to be involved. And that's, that's really uh, unique. So in patient-centered care, you're at the center of, of the care, as, as you can imagine. And, and it, it, you provide um, teams, medical teams provide all the, all the uh, uh, resources that are needed for the various functions to, to address patients' needs. And for the most part, uh, it works really well, uh, except when it doesn't. Um, so a great example of, of this is a, this is a model uh, team put together for this patient, and uh, what happened was they were not in the computer. So the best laid plans uh, couldn't be fulfilled, and that's that's probably the next and, and major barrier, if you will, is, is sort of the electronic side. You, all, all the physicians out here know about electronic records and that kind of thing, and, and the, the cumbersomeness of that. But what's a role? What's a patient advocate? And, and I'm going to distinguish this between patient-centered care. So patient advocate is a, is a component of patient-centered care. So, so a patient advocate can be anybody. It can be you, it can be me, uh, any, any uh, person with the uh, mandate of uh, improving the well-being of patients and the outcome of their medical care. Uh, with doctors like Dr. Litvan and Dr. Jameson, uh, that's a no-brainer. Uh, you've got the best people who understand that it's the uh, outcome of the patient's uh, uh, medical care that, that, that's key. Uh, but, but a patient advocate needs to have sincere interest in the well-being of patients. It can be a spouse, a parent, a child, a sibling. Uh, you need to be able to explain why things are going the way they are. Uh, that, that means explain to your patient relatives um, why this therapy works the way it does and it needs to be done this way. It needs to be done this, this particular details. And as well as the, the physician has something to learn from the patient advocate from, about the family. What are the family's expectations? Uh, if, if there's a disalignment between the, what the physician thinks they should be doing and what the, parent, the family thinks they should be doing, uh, it can be disastrous, and, and disastrous in un, un, unnecessary ways. Um, patient management, meaning uh, uh, patient-centered care, is a very complex process. You've got to identify the patient needs, listen to, to them and what, what they, what they uh, need, uh, hear what they're saying. Not listening is, is a physical act of just being in the room and having your ears, ears open, and hearing is really understanding uh, or, or paying attention to what they're saying. Um, you need to translate that into a technical aspect. One of the slides that, that Dr. Litvan showed that was so important was this uh, multi-billion dollar cost of drug development and the high rate of failures. Well, if we had a more focused view of what a successful drug needed to be by asking patients who were going to be the customers buying them and, and, uh, and using them, that would help us uh, reduce the number of so-called failures, because they may not be failures in, in a scientific sense, but they may be failures in, in a sense of, of really uh, changing people's lives in a positive way. Um, and so that's communication. Communication is, science and medicine have a unique language. They have vocabulary and uh, everything about it is, is, is doctor speak. I mean, you, you think, you, you watch an episode of Grey's Anatomy on TV and you think that they sit at home at night and think about ways to say, to put words together to make uh, 10 syllable words to describe something uh, small, but but communication is specific and have jargon in a, in a, in a specialized field helps people talk uh, quickly and communicate more effectively. So what do patients want and what do patients need? Are those the same thing? Uh, not always, but usually what, when you get down to it, they are. Um, the, the, what's, what's the benefit that they need from a drug? And what's the side effect? We talked about side effects. Uh, I think Dr. Lightman talked about side effects and Dr. Uh, Cleveland maybe did as well. Um, and the side effects are, are critical because uh, if it's not working or not or making you worse than you were when you started, then it's that people are not going to appreciate the the, uh, the value. 
Uh, so why, why is, is a patient advocate worth the problem, worth the trouble? Uh, each, each patient has different needs. Newly diagnosed patients are assessed and managed by a team. That's, that's when you really can grab hold of these people and change their lives. Uh, I think Dr. Litvin would tell you that a number of stories where she's had new patients uh, being diagnosed and depending upon how they walk out the door, whether they want to partner with um, her or whether they just want to run and hide, that has a big uh, uh, impact on, on their ultimate health. Um, the physicians, I can speak specifically for UCSD, the physicians with the right attitude and the right training and the right medicine are there. Uh, the, the patient has to be ready. And a patient advocate can help, help, uh, help, help deliver that. Each patient has kind of a subset of different needs in Parkinson's. Um, patient advocate and patient for sure. Neurologist, yes. A nurse practitioner, yes. Social worker, yes. Support groups, yes. Physical therapist, yes. Exercise. But also Parkinson's is one of these diseases that has a, a buffet of, of, of uh, symptoms that, that may require speech therapy or, or swallowing uh, testing, occupational therapy, neuropsych a neuropsychologist, with, which Dr. Litvin is, a neurosurgeons, which there's a whole surgical program for people with Parkinson's uh, and, and someone to manage that. So a patient advocate fits in here by um, being the uh, great organizer, the great uh, product manager uh, of that role. But, but I, I say this as if patient, a patient advocate is, is a job that you go apply for at the hospital. Patient advocate is you for your spouse or your sibling or your parents. It's, it's, it's somebody who has any kind of close relationship with somebody else. Going to the doctor alone, you just shouldn't do it. You're going to get so much information that for one person to try to digest that, and especially if it's if troublesome news, that, that's very difficult. It's asking a lot. Um, but, but patient care can be game-changing by communicating the details of what the patient expects and hopes for. Beyond the patient, uh, an advocate can serve as an individual. Uh, uh, doesn't have to be just for a relative. It can be uh, serving a community. Um, it can be taking the community, the Parkinson's community's uh, goals and needs and uh, effectively uh, turning them into social change, what, what involves perhaps money and funding, uh, educate the public when, when it involves what the public needs to know, uh, consult on new, new therapies. Um, again, go back to that slide that, that Dr. Littman had, which is wonderful about the drug development. Having patient advocates uh, have their two cents worth at various stages uh, is, is a phenomenal uh, benefit to the park, the ultimate patient as well as the, uh, the, the, the development of, of the drug, the developer of the drug. Um, in fact, I might steal that from her. Um, obviously, CIRM, something I'm very proud of, have a, a personal interest in as, as a board member. Uh, this uh, is, is a, it's a beautiful building, but also it's full of very smart, very motivated, very successful uh, scientists and clinicians. And uh, we should be very proud uh, in San Diego that we have one of five of these institutions, and this one is by far the the best one. Uh, so probably there are many of you in the audience that don't think of yourself as a patient advocate, but, but, but you are. Uh, if you help a spouse or a parent or somebody, a family member with, with a, deal with an issue, you're a patient advocate. Um, and that's a good thing. That's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an essential thing for someone to have a good medical experience. So, so one example, and then I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up. Uh, remember the TV shows back in the day when TV was new and um, a grandmother was in hospital and they just, they just uh, discovered that she has lung cancer. So the doctor and the children and the husbands sort of huddle out in the hallway and says, well, what are we going to tell her? What are we going to tell her? Oh, we'll tell her that she's got emphysema and she's got to go home and rest. And then she'll just die and never know. Think about that. I mean, we actually really used to do that, um, which just blows my mind. But um, 
uh, I, I saw it in, in actually the, the handling of my grandmother who had Parkinson's. Just, don't, don't, just tell her what you have to. Don't tell her everything. Don't tell her that it's bad news. Like bad news is, is the only, uh, is only uh, detrimental. And, and uh, bad, news, bad news is bad news, but it also empowers the patient uh, to uh, be able to, 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 uh, to deal with it and, and deal with it in a way that's meaningful for them. Now that's, that's like the, the speed version of that. I've never done it that fast. Um, I, I want to thank, uh, again, thank the uh, physicians uh, and, and scientists that work in this building or that work in the, the uh, Stanford uh, Consortium building and, and Torrey Pines. And if anybody here has any questions about how their taxpayers' monies are, are being used truthfully, um, let, let me know. I'd be happy to um, talk about that with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. You know, it's clear that with your own advocacy at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, um, great strides have been made in terms of developing new therapies and potentially new diagnostic techniques, as Dr. Litvan was alluding to with a prodromal version of Parkinson's disease. The earlier we treat, the better it may be. And as we heard from Don Cleveland, DNA is not destiny because there's designer DNA um, in a way that we can use in, uh, for drugs. So there are a number of questions here. Uh, one of the questions is, uh, I think this is for Don, when you suppress PTB, is it cell cycle specific? For example, what if you are uh, suppressing PTB in neurons uh, as opposed to other cell types? So it's the, the cell type and context specificity of PTB suppression is the question. It is not cell type selective, but uh, within the nervous system, um, PTB is barely expressed in the neurons, so suppressing it further doesn't, doesn't we think, is, uh, has, has no effect on the neurons. The cell type that's most affected is, is the astrocyte, but other cells would, would also see that. So far, of course, these are all issues as you, uh, as you get more sophisticated that, of course, we need to uh, determine whether what's the fate of other cells as PTB is suppressed. But what we know is that in, the, in those uh, uh, animals with chemically induced Parkinson's disease, we got disease reversal. So uh, there, and I, I get asked frequently, don't, the, don't those astrocytes do important things? And so now aren't you gonna deplete the astrocytes? And I'm thinking, well, actually in one direct experiment, the answer is no, we didn't deplete the astrocytes. Whatever, whichever one's converted told their friends that they needed to make more astrocytes. So we, uh, 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 right now we, have, we only see, if we've only observed effects in, in the astrocytes of course, we need to look more uh, carefully at uh, the, the, the cells that make my, the myelin that coats these axons, the oligodendrocytes, the microglia. But the neurons, it, it, they, they don't make PTB anyway. Mm -hmm. So then uh, one just short question for you as well, Don. Uh, when would you estimate designer DNA therapy will be available for Parkinson's disease? Yeah, so those are really hard to estimate. But I, I, we do know that... And at the end of 2021, we'll see the outcome from the first, um, uh, the first uh, clinical trial. We hope that we've been able to demonstrate that we that uh, uh, that we can uh, indeed uh, uh, deliver the drug safely, and that we can hit the target and lower lower uh, the target. And the first one will be LARC2, uh, and then that we can lower alpha synuclein. Then, then there will be the big, a big trial, efficacy trial, which we hope would initiate uh, in 2022, and that would be uh, the way these go, a two-year two trial. So um, there will be a, uh, an efficacy trial in 2020, 
two-ish, I, I hope. And I should, I should, but I should make it absolutely clear, I am not a, uh, a representative of uh, Ionis or Biogen or, or Roche, and so I am not pre- making predictions for those companies. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a cheerleader uh, for the approach, and I, uh, but I, I think uh, in the uh, uh, you know 2023, 24 will be the efficacy trial. The outcome of those will be 2025, uh, and if we were successful, that that that's the time frame that would be required for uh, an FDA approval. Right. Well, thanks very much. Uh, one question for Dr. Litvin: um, How often do people have multi-copy alpha-synuclein gene-driven? idiopathic Parkinson's disease. How common is that? It's a rare disease. It's hyper rare. Okay. And then that's good to know. And although there may be a way to target it, and I'm sure you'll be doing the clinical trials, Dr. Litvin. Uh, The final question goes to David Higgins. Uh, Do you have advice on how to communicate the need for a patient advocate to a patient who is reluctant to include one or admit they need help? If you have a physician that is resisting the role of a patient advocate, get a new physician. And if you need something like that, let me know. Okay. Well, I know that uh, David and Irene and Don are always available. Uh, They're incredible mentors for other scientists and physicians and uh, patient advocates. And I, you know, we will be able to respond to some of your questions via email. Uh, This has been a spectacular first uh, WebEx first closer look. And you can see we work very closely together. We all get along rather well uh, because we're pretty excited about what we're doing. And we really appreciate you joining us for this special closer look on Parkinson's disease. Thanks again.